Welcome back, listeners, to the Religious Studies Project. We're powering on through academic year 2017-2018. Can't believe quite how many weeks we are into our new year at the RSP. Uh, I'm Christopher Carter, joined by... David Robertson. And today we've got an interview with Erica Bornstein, uh, conducted by Giuseppe Bellotta and Catherine Shear, who you'll remember from a fortnight ago, because this is part of our NGOs series. So the series is Religion and NGOs. It's edited by R. Michael Fiener, and it's sponsored primarily by the Henry Luce Foundation. So thanks to them for bringing this to your ears. And this interview is on Beyond Faith-Based Organizations, Religion and NGOs in Comparative Perspective. So I'm quite happy to hand over to Catherine, Giuseppe, and Erica. If you are, David. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Let's go. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. We are Catherine Scheer and Giuseppe Bolotta, and this is the second installment of our series on religion and NGOs. A few words on this series. Since the turn of the 21st century, there has been a remarkable surge of interest among both policymakers and academics into the effects that religion has on international aid and development. Within this broad field, the work of religious NGOs or so-called faith-based organizations, has garnered considerable attention. This series of podcasts for the Religious Studies Project seeks to explore how the discourses, practices, and institutional forms of both religious actors and purportedly secular NGOs intersect, and how these engagements result in changes in our understanding of both religion and development. Religious NGOs play significant roles in service delivery, community organization, advocacy, and mediating flows of information and resources across the globe. Their religious inflections can both enhance the effective reach of particular projects and complicate the already fraught policy environment in which NGOs operate. While policy frameworks influence the kinds of activities that religious NGOs are able to undertake, they rarely dictate practice. In this interview, we talk with Professor Erika Bonstein about her studies of religious giving and social activism in South Asia and Africa, and about what the results of her research contribute to our understanding of the complex configurations of faith-based organizations across diverse religious contexts. So before formally introducing our guest for today's interview, we would like to thank the Everlus Foundation for supporting our research on this topic and the production of this series. Now, speaking with us today about religion and NGOs is Professor Erika Bonstein. She is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Her research critically examines non-profits, non-governmental organizations, and groups working in the voluntary sector. She has written several books on humanitarianism, philanthropy, and economic development, including the pioneering monographs, The Spirit of Development, Protestant NGOs, Morality and Economics and Economics in Zimbabwe, first published by Routledge in 2003 and later reprinted by Stanford University Press in 2005, and more recently, Disquieting Gifts, Humanitarianism and New Day, published by Stanford University Press in 2012. She is one of the major experts of intersections between religion, economy and politics in humanitarian fields, and we are greatly looking forward to speaking with her today. Thank you very much for being here with us at the Religious Studies Project, Erica. My pleasure. Katrin, do you want to start with our first questions? Sure. Your book, The Spirit of Development, was a groundbreaking ethnography exploring the intersections between religion and development in Zimbabwe. 
You have since gone on to author Disquieting Gifts and also added the collection of chapters titled Forces of Compassion, which includes some rich essays analyzing the entanglements between religion and humanitarianism. How did you first become interested in this field? I originally wanted to study the relationship between religion and politics, and I was looking for an ethnographic site to think through a series of questions. More broadly, I'm interested in what motivates people to make social change, to change someone's religion, as in evangelical organizations, or to change someone's beliefs. In the case of faith-based organizations like World Vision in Zimbabwe, I wanted to understand what motivates people to want to change people's lives, economically and spiritually. For religious people, economics can't be disaggregated from cosmological understanding. The distinction between material and spiritual realms doesn't make sense in many parts of the world. I've been fascinated by the conviction it takes to want to change someone's religion. Personally, I never understood it until I conducted my fieldwork in Zimbabwe, and I'd actually been rather afraid of it, the extreme force of the conviction. One finds similar conviction in other realms, in humanitarianism, in social activism. It has this utter urgency. At first sight, religious NGO might look like a strange hybrid between faith and sociopolitical activism, within apparently secular policy frameworks. These organizations, religious inflections, can both enhance the effective reach of particular projects and complicate the already fraught policy environment in which NGOs operate. If we consider the development scenario of Zimbabwe in the 90s, compared to the very different humanitarian context of contemporary India, how do you see global, national and local policy frameworks shape the form taken up by religious NGOs and the projects they engage in? Hmm, well, the world was really a different place in the mid-1990s, especially for NGOs. It was a hopeful time and a growth period for, um, in both Zimbabwe and India. Zimbabwe achieved its independence much later than India, but both countries were former British colonies. Both had periods of socialism that later shifted to rapidly liberalizing economies. And NGOs were considered hopeful forces in the liberalization process. They multiplied in both settings. In Zimbabwe and in India, religious NGOs were involved in development, education, and healthcare, etc. Now, I can't say much about what's happening in contemporary Zimbabwe, as I'm not in touch with the NGO community there anymore. But in India and in other parts of the world that have strong states and strong civil society traditions, such as Russia, Egypt, and Turkey, the state has become very suspicious of the nonprofit sector. And the nonprofit sector has come to signify an arena of, dis of potential dissent. Of course, this varies according to the religious orientation of the state or if it's secular and the laws protecting uh, nonprofits in each context. So global policy frameworks are less influential this these days than national ones, mm. which can restrict funding that crosses borders. Right. And this is a really big change since the 1990s because NGOs can't survive without donor support. They're donor dependent. Right. In your work on Christian NGOs in Zimbabwe and humanitarianism in India, you shed light on different intersections of religion and development by examining how different cultures of charitable giving operate within specific policy frameworks, institutional arrangements and socio-economic contexts. Religious NGOs emerge as important brokers of these intersections. How would you describe the nature, if any, of these organizations, their specific position within global humanitarianisms, and the impact of their intervention in the contexts in which you conduct your research. 
Transnational NGOs like World Vision are very powerful because they move across contexts. They're a lot like corporations. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, such types of institutions are structured like corporations with international boards and national offices. At times, the national office has to be incorporated as a local organization in each country. Thus, World Vision Zimbabwe will look and operate very differently than World Vision India. It will have a local board, and it will be staffed by local people, also abide by national laws. And this isn't any different from non-religious or secular NGOs like Oxfam or um, MSF. Right. But what might be different is the way that faith and faith-based activities can be carried out in each national setting. And for anthropologists like me, this makes a lot of sense because context really matters. It poses specific empirical questions for anthropologists. If one studies a faith-based organization, one must ask what that means in each particular context. Thank you so much, Yurika. Another question for you. You have problematized the tension between global registers of humanitarianism and the business of everyday life. The concepts of a liberal altruism and relational empathy you introduce in your book on humanitarianism in India seem to echo this tension. Two religious NGOs position themselves in a specific way within this tension. So, based on my last answer to the question about context, I'm reluctant to make huge generalizations. If I must try, I'd say that religious organizations operate within a framework of a community of believers. And in this sense, they're relational. However, we have to be attentive to minor differences. Some religions, like Christianity, are congregational. Relationality could be in terms of the congregation, and organizations like World Vision raise their money through church congregations for their child sponsorship programs. Hinduism is not a congregational religion. Nonetheless, I, I would say that the language of belonging and kinship can be extended to relationships in Hinduism as well, perhaps with deities, for example. Now, liberal altruism, the way I've conceived of it, privileges institutions over people and the individual or cause over known relationships. It's more abstract. In this sense, it could be a motivating force for Christian philanthropy as well. So these are empirical questions that have to be explored in context. When we understand patterns of motivation and social action, it's easy to see larger social processes at work. So it's an empirical question, what's motivating for people to help others? Well, liberal altruism might motivate someone to give to a cause or volunteer millions of miles away. I venture to say that more local practices of humanitarianism are almost always guided by relational empathy. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month by going to patreon.com slash projectrs and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Well, this was, this was a fascinating introduction into your, how you got to your initial book. Now it would be interesting to understand how you moved from this ethnography, this pioneering ethnography of 
Protestant NGOs in Zimbabwe to the broader topic of giving in the Indian context? It's a good question. As a matter of fact, in anthropology, it's not really common to change such regional areas of research. And mm-hmm. so it was, I think, either a brave or a stupid thing for me to do. But I did it because there was some unresolved issue from my first book, The Spirit of Development, mm-hmm. that I felt I needed to explore. And in my first book, when I was studying child sponsorship, I realized that the gift could mean something very different for the person who's giving the gift and then for the recipient. So, for example, in Zimbabwe, when a sponsor gives to a family, it might displace power relationships within the family. And I know that World Vision has since changed its practices to try to avoid this, but in the mid-1990s, it was a real issue. It was creating jealousies, and it was really disrupting all sorts of relationships on the ground, on the ground in communities, between children. That really fascinated me. Also, the, there was some hesitation to start child sponsorship programs within Zimbabwe because of people's understandings of ancestral relationships. And how could one take care of a child if one didn't know the ancestral relationship? So the, the whole sense of re- relationality extended out into the spirit realm as well as, as the local community. Yeah. That really stuck with me. And that was a part of my project, but it wasn't the entire book. So I wanted to study giving. I knew that. And I wanted to go to a place that was radically different, that wasn't Christian, because I thought so much about Christian ideas of of giving and charity. But I knew that there are other places where people do this kind of activity, and it's very different looking. So India is not a Christian nation. It's majority Hindu, although it has a missionary history as well, and it also has this British colonial history. But uh, the gift, ideas of giving, are, are some of them are radically influenced by Hindu ideas of freedom and liberation from the material realm. Mm-hmm. So it presented a completely I different mean. environment to try to test some of my questions. When I got to India, you know, I had a lot to learn, and that was good. As an ethnographer, you, mm-hmm. you have to be humble, and you, you learn, and you realize how, how complicated the world can be. But what I was really struck by is how people in New Delhi, in Indians, mostly Hindus, that I was talking with in, in religious contexts like temples, as well as in secular arenas like orphanages, Indians had really different ideas of what it meant to donate their time and their efforts and even their funds, than the volunteers from coming from abroad. Exactly. So that became the comparative relationship, which is kind of similar to what I was looking at in Zimbabwe with its sponsors. Mm -hmm. But because the cultural historical context was so radically different, it really opened my mind up to think about giving differently, Mm -hmm. and humanitarianism as well. Right, coming up from the ground. Coming up from the ground and not the ground, right? From all over the world, landing in airplanes and people <laughs> and not knowing how to behave properly in a humanitarian context. People expecting to volunteer and NGOs not knowing how to integrate volunteers. The energies. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Do, do you want maybe to, to tell us, because this is an interesting story, how you position yourself as an anthropologist, as a mother as a wife within the humanitarian Indian context in its plural manifestations, because this was a very interesting introductory part of your book on humanitarianism in New Delhi. Sure. I mean, that was another 
aspect of the fieldwork for my second book that was just very different than my first one. My first book was my dissertation, and I went all by myself to a place where I had no connections except for some scholar friends who had introduced me to people. And I was I was viewed by many people as a kind of oddball, right? What kind of woman comes so far away and leaves all of their relationships to spend a year in this place trying to understand our world? And when I went to India, I was a lot older, married, had a kid, and my partner is, is from India, so I had a kind of network of social relationships that I was thrust into and embraced by, and those relationships taught me a lot about what it meant to participate in society as a good human being and what it meant to give, what the duty of giving meant to family, this kin-based kind of giving, which is not humanitarian, and then giving to strangers. And it was, I think that that was something that also helped me understand this distinction between the kinship of humanitarianism and more liberal ideas of giving to strangers. And I think there, on your concluding notes, you kind of put into context the Western perception of giving, emphasizing agency, putting it in a larger context. Could you maybe say a few words on on the broad picture? Well, this I mean, the broad picture that comes out of the tradition of liberal thought, and this is something that I encounter when I teach my classes on humanitarianism and human rights, and I teach the canon of this tradition, and students really understand it, and it comes naturally to them. But then when they're forced to think about giving practices or humanitarian, caring practices in other cultural contexts, they start to get more confused, right? And that's the comparative relationship that I was trying to explore. I was really struck also as I wrote this book, and writing ethnographies takes years, so I would go to the field for a year and then come back and write and then go back and re-explore and come back and write and teach in, mm -hmm. in my job. And it was teaching students who really, really were desperate to go and volunteer somewhere and participate in the world and experience the world through charitable dynamics and charitable engagement that made me think about this liberal altruism as well. And some of my students had actually been on mission trips. So they come to the they come to classes on human rights or humanitarianism with their own religious-based experience of doing humanitarianism. But they're forced to think critically about it for the first time. And it's very exciting to see their worlds opening up because mm -hmm. they're beginning to to really analyze their own experience and the experience of others. Maybe a last question, Erika. You told us before that you are working on a new exciting project and so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this and how this project is departing from your previous projects in both Zimbabwe and India. How are these projects, if they are related somehow? Sure, they're definitely related. So my, if I could create a narrative arc of my books, the first one was really about NGOs. And I compared two NGOs and I really looked at what it meant to be a religious NGO, what it meant for the people who work for the organization in different office locations, mm -hmm. and for people who engage with the organization kind of peripherally as sponsors, donors, and then also as beneficiaries. So the NGO 
as a central form, I really wanted to put on the map with that book and say, this is important. We need to understand what these kinds of institutional actors are doing in the world because they're doing a lot and they're very powerful. And World Vision at the time was the biggest Christian NGO in the world. So I wanted to look at something that was good at what it did. It was, it's hard to study nonprofits and I just got a little sick of it. And when I was in India, I decided for my second book, Disquieting Gifts, I wanted to open, really explode the category of humanitarianism and giving and not get constrained by the category of the NGO and the institution. So I, my fieldwork was very different. I didn't sit down in, in one organization. I went all over the place. I talked to as many people as possible. I tried to think about humanitarianism in all of its possible incarnations. Including within your family circles, right? Right, within my family circles. And they honestly were very helpful in introducing me to people who did this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, it was through those networks that I could find people doing the daily practices, mm-hmm. the ordinary practices of humanitarianism. And, the, and Indian ideas of Don or Seva, they're not extraordinary, right? They're ordinary. And that's important to think about as well. Right. But then, just like my first project where there was an unresolved question that I had to explore, I found another one in my second project, which has turned into my third one, which is this incredible pressure by the state and by other NGOs in India to figure out how to do their work better, how to regulate this crazy, unruly, dynamic, diverse sector called the nonprofit sector. How does one... In the nonprofit sector, they're not elected, they're not assessed in any coherent way, and that's part of their the power of that arena is that it's so diverse and so dynamic and so fluid and and so responsive to what happens. So I decided I wanted to look at that process itself, and this this book I'm writing now is an ethnography of regulation, and it looks at laws. And I've been working, studying advocacy and research organizations trying to work with the government to create laws that are helpful to the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. I also have been interviewing tax accountants and civil servants and people who really try to help NGOs abide by the laws. And looking at it over time, like a kind of decade-long view that I'm exploring. How do these laws change How does the engagement with the laws affect people doing this kind of work, this kind of nonprofit work in the Indian context? I think civil society is changing, as I mentioned, in the world as well. So it's part of a much larger shift that I see taking place of the relationship of nonprofits in society. And religious nonprofits are part of this. They've always been a big part of it. We are greatly looking forward to this book. Right? <laughs> Thank you. So one could listen to Erika for hours, but our time <laughs> is over. So once again, thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Bonstein, for joining us at the Religious Studies Project. Thanks very thank much you. for inviting me. Thanks to everybody for that. Another very interesting interview and an interesting series. Something that I don't think we would ever have come up with to do, Chris. So uh, really good to have people bringing us these ideas. And if you are involved in a project that you think 
we'd be a good home to cover some podcasts for, please do get in touch at editors at religiousstudiesproject.com as ever. We'd be delighted to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely, because we are constrained by our own research interests and the kind of avenues that we would think would be interesting to explore. So our listeners and other academics out there are our source for inspiration. So absolutely, please contribute we've got an interview next week sammy bishop recorded again at the soccer conferences with adam possamai on hyper real religion so that is what's well, on hyper real religion digital capitalism and the pygmalion effect adam possamai has worked with our good friend professor jim cox they wrote a book together on a religion and non-religion amongst the australian aboriginal people that's right yes he also has worked with carol cusack as well and her work on invented religions builds upon on Possumai's concept of hyper-real religion. So you might want to go back and check that interview out. One of our very first, actually, I think perhaps the third interview we recorded, maybe the fourth. Yeah, it certainly went out very early. It was was in that first batch of interviews at the BSR 2011 in Durham. Absolutely correct. So do check that out and it'll be interesting to see how his thinking has developed, probably along slightly different lines from Carol's. In the meantime... Don't think we've got too much in the way of extra news. We're into that sort of part of the the academic year where things are trundling along quite nicely. We've got a full schedule for you, everyone, um, right up until our festive break. And I know that David is uh, hard at work editing our festive midwinter irreverent special. Absolutely, I am. But I think we're actually scheduled past that now. I think we're into January, possibly even February. Got a lot of great material lined up and uh, still more to come in uh, before the year's over so uh, do keep in touch you can follow us oh i don't need to do that anymore because it's on the thing it's on the end yeah yeah see listen we get we're so well practiced at doing all the spiel that we forgot that we we, we've we've recorded that i was thinking about this the other day this is what like the 270th one so the number of times we've sat down and done this you know, it's Monday or hello there, or whatever we do at the beginning. It, must we must be, be embodying these uh, kind of things. Anyway, just go away. Yeah. Or no, 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 that's not, that's not it. It's thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.